Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I just came out of the gym, so if it breaks up uh, or I'm panting, that's why. So yeah, I mean, it's been a bit of a, a beehive kick, as you've probably seen, which is good, right? I mean, uh, putting out a, a bit of bit of critique on what's been going over there in the on the East crowd and getting a bit of feedback. I mean, I think it's it's been certainly an interesting response to go and see what's come out of it. I'll admit that personally, I'm I'm a little bit disappointed by the response in the sense that it kind of signals that uh, there's some of the thought maybe hasn't gone into it as as you would kind of expect for a 230 billion dollar network but you know it's been an eye-opening experience i think it's the first time that i've seen in some time that a few people have been kind of scratching their heads and there's also the political element right that this thing this merge is is a month away and uh, the question is what do in such a short period of time is it enough of an issue to do anything is this weak subjectivity social consensus thing UASF, is that really a path people want to go down? Do you deal with it as an engineering or a political decision? I mean, you know, this is good because many, I'm sure many people in this room, myself included, by the way, I wasn't around for the 2017 scaling wars. So to kind of see a, a little bit of a microcosm happening elsewhere on a different chain is, is good to see because, you know, these are social beasts, these are these networks, and they're getting to see them play out the scale is a, is a big thing. So enjoy while it lasts. Yeah, so check. Sam and I, you know, we've been talking, thinking about how to kind of approach our evaluation of, of ETH and, and proof of stake. And we're a Bitcoin focused and we're a Bitcoin first publication. But just the reality is, you know, you have people claiming and, and whether we agree or not that this is the biggest event in crypto history, right? And so to, to evaluate it at an objective level and to pick apart and say, why is this from a design perspective, from a, just a political perspective, why is this maybe not the best idea? And, and really, like, what are the weak points of ETH? And so I'll run through just a quick list. And then maybe if you want to like dive into them and we can have some discourse around that. So I think for us, we kind of highlighted a couple of things. It was the increasing reliance on centralized stable coins, which are your, you know, real, real world assets kind of, you know, issued to a liability on chain, right? Stable coins issued by Circle and the whole, like, and everything that happened over the last week. Right, with the kind of the sanction list, the treasury coming out, OFAC. These are things that the kind of the privacy crowd has been highlighting for a while. And just really the kind of the, the free capital movement supporters and stable coins, you know, obviously aren't censorship resistant. But we really have never had kind of had a, had a real world test, especially, you know, ETH and the whole DeFi land. So that was an eye opener. The next is understanding the proof of mechanism and, and what a, you know, a validator is. And really the increasing centralization of the staking services um, because of the incentives that all, that kind of lie with it, right? And, you know, I you refer to it as Timmy on a laptop doesn't want to spin up 32 ETH, especially, you know, in a world where ETH is, say, five or $10,000, which is complete is a complete possibility. No one wants to do that on a laptop and risk doing it wrong and not being able to date with the docs and getting slashed like, and losing their stake because they do it wrong. I'd, wrong. I'd rather have Binance do it. I'd rather have Lido do it, which gives me actually a liquid token back. So that's the other one is is kind of the the centralization of stake and what you know the incentives out with that. And then I think we kind of particularly are focused on Lido and the liquid staking, and and we're kind of digging into it a little bit today. And the vote that Lido had to actually limit how much stake they had, right, to, to, to limit how much stake they could have a percentage of ETH on the network, and. The, the vote was conducted using the Lido governance token, which is the one first, the top 1% of addresses hold 95% of the supply. And it's all US VC firms, you know, the, the biggest names in the whole crypto bunch, right? So just kind of evaluating all of these things and saying like, hey, this, this new mechanism, which is, you know, this supposedly this kind of innovative thing that 
these guys built with their bare hands over the last years. It's really kind of a system that may be prone to political capture. And, you know, here's why. So am I missing anything or did I kind of cover just a, a brief, you know, most of your points there? Yeah, no, I, I think you did cover all, most of the points. And I think the important part is that, and this is, this is the cost of complexity. And the cost of complexity is that you have engineering teams working on many, many facets. And what you really need is a very, very confident and very skilled team, really, overlooking all of these elements to see, you know, you may be solving the slashing problem over here, but does that open up another problem somewhere else, right? Big, more complexity, more attack surface. Makes sense. Now, my view on this whole thing is there's kind of a political layer and there's a engineering layer. So the engineering layer is actually solving these individual problems and, you know, validators and all this type of thing. But then, you know, again, I'm walking, so if I'm panting, that's why. Matt O'Dell has been that for a very, very long time. That the reality is that people just want convenience, right? They just want to put their stake somewhere that someone else can deal with it. People are very good and desire the delegation of risk. They also don't trust themselves. I mean, you know, most people are just not technical. I myself am in that boat, right? I don't want to put 320 bucks on my kitchen counter. It's just, it's a lot of money and it's a big, uh, it's a big ask. So I think the underestimation, hang on, the underestimation of the social layer of the average punter wants convenience and wants to delegate risk. The result of that, the result of that particular impact is that you do get this centralization. And then you layer on top of that Lido, right? Great example. CK, you and I have been talking about this for many, many years. They went and issued all these governance tokens, left, right, and center, right? Every protocol's got a token. Well, those tokens want their token to go up. Now, you introduce a Solana or you introduce an Avalanche or any of the things, they're incentivized to go wherever the users go. So because you've introduced governance, you should expect those token holders to act in their own best interest, right? As any of us would in a business. So when there's another revenue opportunity, right? The new lands over in the Americas show up, you would expect those companies to migrate over there and open up a branch. So you've now been created the incentive for these tokens to look after themselves. They're actually, in many ways, parasitic. They're both beneficial. You, know, you want the applications to give the ETH the, the value in the first place, but they're also parasitic in the sense that they're mercenaries. They will move wherever the revenue is highest. And let's just say, for example, that you know, some breakthrough happens on scalability and Solana really does kick ass, right? For example. If the users all move over there, you better believe that the, the amount of dev attention and app focus and all that will move with the users because that's where the fees are. And the token holders want to generate, same as any business, as much money as possible. Lido is acting perfectly in a investors, right? And as you mentioned, it's very heavily centralized. So in many ways, these things were kind of visible at a political level. And it doesn't matter what you do on the engineering side. If you get captured at the political level, it doesn't matter. You can build the most impressive palace of all time. If it's on quicksand, who cares? You know what I mean? So that's kind of the, uh, the core issue, I think, is they underestimated the human and the social and the political capture level. And quite honestly, I think they underestimated the TC situation. Really, that should be new information. And that really should lead to a reassessment, a step back. You know, maybe all the bases are covered. Maybe. I don't believe they are. Maybe they are. But if so, step back and just make sure that everyone's aware that you've covered it via X, Y, and Z. Complaining and posturing on Twitter is just not going to do it. 
Great points, check. Hey guys, could we invite Alex B? If Alex, you want to come talk, you've, you've been covering kind of just a whole mess with minor extractable value, MEV on Ethereum, and just, you know, the reality that that block producers, because there's so many kind of, you know, smart contract protocols, DEXs, all these automated mar market makers and oracles, there's actually, there's value to be captured by producing the blocks, right? For anyone that's not familiar with Ethereum, it's called MEV, minor extractable value. And now I guess it's, I think it's maximal extractable value. Basically just, you know, that, these protocols, these stakers can make a lot of money, especially the ones with the best bots and the dev teams and all that by, by ordering the blocks and potentially censoring them. Jack, Sam and I have done a whole lot of digging on Ethereum docs recently. Our, our last, last couple of days has been <laughs> trudging through. You know, it's a complex beast it's, to say the least. It, it is a, it is a beast and maybe not our you know most favorite thing, but it is fascinating. And, and even like the guys, you know, Dan, Danny Ryan, who's like a, one of the lead kind of researchers for this, you know, proof of stake process for the Ethereum Foundation, he was saying like a couple months ago, and he wrote it out. He said, and I feel like it's not getting much coverage, at least objective coverage. And I actually try to follow, you know, the Ethereum crowd, you know, the altcoin crowd, because I want to be able to evaluate these arguments. Like, you know, maybe it is a scam, or maybe it's a flawed, you know, process designed to fail. But I actually want to understand why. And you know, you got these guys on the Ethereum Foundation saying liquid staking derivatives such as Lido and similar protocols. Or strategy, uh, cartelization and induce significant risks to the Ethereum protocol and associated pools of capital. And so, I mean, here we are, we're a month out from the merge and Lido has 31% of, of ETH uh, proof uh, of stake, of total value staked. Coinbase, Kraken, and Binance are behind with 11%, 8%, and 6%, right? So, so here, I mean, there, there's 50%, I mean, maybe not Binance, but if you want to include some of the other US entities, right? There's, there's over half, there's maybe 60, 65% of, of total value staked on ETH that's captured already, right? And I think the, the thing that I would certainly want to highlight and the thing that really struck me is these things probably could be solved with education, right? People, you really should be solo staking. Here's the guides. Here's the whatever. So helping people understand that they shouldn't have gone on Coinbase. A lot of people have gone on Coinbase because they were always going to, right? And they just didn't really know. The education is tough. A lot of people who contact me said, I just, I, I'm not, familiar enough with this stuff to understand these risks, right? I needed someone to explain it to me. So giving these people an opportunity at an engineering level, right? To me as an engineer, I look at this thing and I go, okay, we have a potential mitigation, which is allow a reshuffling of the mining pools in inverted commas, right? Allow that reshuffling to take place off the back of education, so on and so forth. To me, that's what should happen. They should push the withdrawal code, allow people to reshuffle, negate the risk completely, and then merge. Now, what are you going to have to deal with? Some teasing from some bloody Bitcoiners, but come on. I mean, if, if all you're worried about is a bit of reputational damage, wait till you have to slash Coinbase because something went wrong because you left the door open. Just close the door, put the lock on, right? And then do your merge. Put your bloody pride aside and do the correct thing from engineering risk management perspective. That's my core view. It's like deal with the risk before you go into it. Don't leave them an unknown window where something can happen just makes no sense and and for those that aren't aware check you're actually an ETH holder right i mean you have a significant portion of the you have what you said 20 percent of your net uh, net wealth and ETH right now yeah 20 percent. 20 percent of held yeah. and this is the thing right i've held i've held it since 2020 or in fact i've held it from before that but i grew it a lot using DeFi tools i'm well and truly versed right i've been there for dia going up and down breaking makers governance all this kind of stuff i've been floating around since uniswap was one way so you know, it's not like I don't know what I'm talking about. I spend enough time 
I've been around long enough to know how these things work. There's a lot of ETH maxis who just call me a bad faith actor. Well, go stuff yourself. You know, when I look at this thing from an engineering perspective, you've got a risk. There's a solution pathway. Fix it, then merge. Put your pride aside and stop gambling with user funds. Want to say hi to Alex? Thanks for coming up, man. You've been you've been covering. I think your pinned tweet is is back from you know summer 2021 or maybe before that. But you've been covering this for a long time before I even really understood what Neb even was or meant. You were you were dropping some heat. So how's it going, man? Cheers, cheers. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for the intro. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, this thing's this thing blew up in the last I'd say couple of months in a way that. I really didn't envision that it would get so much traction. And it, it seems like I was really, I've said that on the podcast, but it felt really felt like everything that's been playing out has really vindicated that the pieces that I laid out last year, it's been almost a year now, you know, we've seen Lido grow almost pretty much hundred percent since I started, started talking about it and every single piece. And, you know, to have, like you said, a, one of the main architects of, of proof of stake in, in Danny Ryan pretty much solidify all of all, all of the concerns. He basically stole your thread. for him. I mean, he basically just stole well, your thread. <laughs> well, I mean, to his credit, and a lot of people did a lot of groundwork in terms of, you know, putting my thread, which was certainly a little bombastic and, and trollish in more consumable format, perhaps for, for other people to, to, to consult and, and try to internalized so I, I think it was it was these and there there are a lot of things there are a couple of things also that he thought i have in, in, in my thread so yeah like i i was going to say the, the unfortunate thing for him is it was in his conclusions was his conclusion was that the only way out was pretty much for lido to limit its growth which we've seen isn't likely to happen anytime soon they actually have they actually voted on that over the last month and it was a landslide in terms of dao lido DO uh, token voters. I think it was the outcome was practically ninety nine percent of of Lido holders voting against that proposal, and I don't think that it's anything like that is going to materialize anytime soon. And although I empathize as well with with Checkmate's take on this, and I, it seems like the most viable solution, at least to to mitigate the immediate concern that, especially with what's been playing out with Tornado Cash, it feels to me like. This attempt to the staking pools and, and the staking dynamics is is effectively just kicking the can down the road. And even even an, an attempt to like the, the narrative is switched to a a sort of UASF slash minority fork movement. But these these attempts would not you know solve the fundamental fundamental incentive problems that that has been engineered into into Ethereum. And unless they find a significant, a material solution to, to the MEV problem, and that could, you know, could be some kind of improvement at the privacy layer. I, I know they're talking about sort of some sort of threshold encryption, which would allow, which would, you know, make transaction effectively private until they're, uh, they're processed into, um, into a block, um, could mitigate the MEV issue, but the, there, there are really two uh, net massive network effects at play: uh, the staking derivatives and, and the MEV extraction. It's hard for me to see uh, any kind of any kind of future where, regardless of the fork, regardless of whether there, there's you know a, a non anti 
USG fork that's, that gets fun of eight. There's always going to be that tendency to centralize into potentially monopoly, monopoly block producer, which then the, the, the USG will just have to target this one next. So it's, it's quite, quite the conundrum they, they find themselves in right now. Yeah, and I think it's a, in terms of a lesson for, for everybody to kind of understand. And, you know, I, I like your approach, Dylan, where the reason why you would study these alternative projects is you can learn a lot, right? Coin to say that Bitcoin will eventually absorb all these technologies. Well, they're showing you how they're done, what works and what doesn't. And it's a good opportunity to learn. And the privacy thing really is the ultimate solution to this. If you can't see the transaction, you cannot censor it because you don't know what it is. You also can't extract value from it because you don't know what's in it. So, Really, privacy is the only way that you could solve this. However, there's then the realistic scenario, which is that, well, Bitcoin's not having Monero privacy anytime soon, and, and nor Ethereum. And once you're doing that privacy layer, even if you did decide to do that, the amount of other trade-offs, as the engineering approach would describe, you're going to have to lose some kind of functionality elsewhere. So this is the game. This, this is the trade-off. And, you know, there is no perfect system. And the UASF thing, I think, is it, it is interesting because that appears to be the, the primary tool that's being bandied around as what's going to happen. Now, look, the reality is they could go down this path, right? They may well go to a path of slashing, let's say, Coinbase and Lido. Now, one thing I did get wrong in my video, which I have since come to terms with, is it's not 68%. Or 67% is the threshold, it's one third. And this actually makes intuitive sense because if you've got 67% to take over as majority and the one third can then push back on them, well, that means that the one third is also a disruptor. So therefore, it's actually not 51%, it's 31%. Or sorry, 33%. So that 33% is basically going to be Lido with any kind of general. Uh, and as I mentioned in the video, whack in there an ETF and uh, it's not going to take long before you've got one or two staking providers that's going to give you grief. Now, the UASF thing is a noble goal. It's certainly possible, right? They certainly could UASF and and and, and perform this this slashing operation. And just what I just entire ecosystem in the, in the uh, process. Yeah. And this is the thing, right? The, the the political layer. So imagine all those titties who are sitting there on Coinbase, and they're on Coinbase because that's where most people go onto Coinbase, especially those who don't have thirty two ETH. Now it's a lot of money for most people. Even at today's prices, that's a lot of money. That's life-changing for, for a huge amount of people. So basically, anybody who's not an early adopter of Ethereum, who is, you know, once you think about who's actually fighting this fight on Twitter, they're more or less people who are probably have been around for a number of years. They've been stacking ETH for many years. They've probably got 32 ETH. They're probably also motivated enough because of their large holdings and their engagement in the community. They're probably more likely to be solo stakers as well. So if you go down this path, and I've, I've seen some, some commentary saying, you know, it's a price worth paying for censorship resistance and, you know, bandy the black flag. That's great. But executing on a theory is very different to executing in the real world. And slashing Coinbase and slashing Binance, every single user who loses money in that situation is probably not going to hold ETH for very long. I think that they're probably done with you. They're going to tell their friends that, you know, this protocol is willing to take my money and slashed me because of a, un, by the way, these are arbitrary rules. What are the rules? Who writes them? What is censorship? Where are these rules? Like who, who is responsible for writing them down? Where is the Ethereum constitution? In many ways, Ethereum actually probably needs a constitution because otherwise you have to rally around the centralized vector, which let's face it is most likely, doesn't have to be, but it's most likely to be the Ethereum foundation. 
So really what this is doing is it's kind of the second version of the difficulty adjustment where because we always have to have this UASF rallied around and, and ready to go, you could argue that Bitcoin has this problem as well with Bitcoin Core, right? Single implementation. The difference with Bitcoin is if you suggest to me to hard fork, I'm going to tell you to go hard fork yourself. So the difference with Ethereum is that they are willing to do these hard forks. And in fact, they pre-program them in to have to happen. So if you go down this UASF path, the fear is that you are going to mince. I mean, what is worse? Really, this is the question that I would put to the Ethereum community. What is worse for your PR? Causing the merge to deal with a genuine engineering concern on new information coming from this tornado cash thing and making a prudent decision to protect users' funds, even if there was a 5% chance that this happens. That, in an engineering world, if you design a bridge with a 5% chance, I'm sacking you. You're out the door. Piss off. Come back when you've got 0.0015%. These are, this is serious business. So what is a bigger PR nightmare? You pausing the merge and just getting the withdrawal code done, educating people and helping little Timmy get his coins into solo staking so you don't slash the little guy to benefit the OGs, or going in and having to do this absolute nightmare UASF, even if you're just banding the black flag. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. I just want to let you know that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale now. The largest Bitcoin conference in Europe will take place from October 12th to 14th. More details can be found at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your Bitcoin Amsterdam tickets today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Try doing this against the state. You just don't underestimate your enemies. These are not toys. These are serious systems. You want to be treated as serious? Be serious, right? So that, that's my core kind of thesis here is it's, it's really time to, to take it very seriously and do the engineering approach. Even if you come back and just delay the merge for a month so you can study this situation, come to a genuine agreement. Yeah, there's no actual issue. Good, carry on. Excellent, no problem. That is prudent engineering. And that is how you maintain network effects. If you want to throw a multi cocktail on it, then good luck. Guys, I've got to drop off. I've got another interview. But you know, as always, feel free to ping me if you've got any questions. Happy to answer them. Jack, cheers, man. Thanks so Thanks much, so much for joining. Thanks, guys. So I don't even really know if what what's the dynamic around the actual date for the merge, but you know, if there was actually something that could be done to improve the situation, you think they'd want to do it after the fact that they've already postponed the merge or proof of stake for several years now. Like, what would a little bit more waiting have to do if there was really an existential crisis? And I think that a lot of these didn't like even like being available for. Ethereans to have to make decisions on really kind of highlight a lot of the social attack vectors that are kind of present with having this this type of social consensus hard forking governance model. The thing that that really stuns me, CK, and and I have yet to find a good answer is what Chuck is suggesting. Like why he's suggesting to with to, you know to pause the merge is is because. These are like the centralization risks that are present and just, and the fact that, you know, even a, and Vitalik replied in a thread um, of Eric Walls the other day talking about this in the case of, and, and we should be clear here. I mean, I can't speak for everybody, 
but I am not like some government supporter proponent. Like I'm not like, I, I really, I screw OFIC, right? Like they're, they're censoring transactions or censoring protocols. I think, you know, they're, they're trying to, you know, sanction information. Ultimately they didn't sanction an address. They didn't sanction an entity or person. They sanctioned a smart contract from any U S person interacting on it. So like, I fundamentally disagree with that, but if we're just thinking, you know, we're, we're going to take the, you know, the production of money away from the state, you should probably think in an adversarial manner. And so the fact that we have this merge coming, there's this really big, I mean, we, I guess the Ethereum community has a merge coming. There's an increasing risk of centralization. You saw censorship at kind of an app level and a node level with consensus and Jira, Cash, the front ends, a lot of these protocols, but the risk of block production, because again, the merge takes block production away from the miners, puts it in the hands of validators, people with ETH. And so all these people with ETH give it to Coinbase and Binance and Lido, and they validate and produce the blocks for them. And so if the US government comes to Coinbase or any of these people, and we're not rooting for it, we're just thinking like in an adversarial environment, if you're to become global money <laughs> or ultrasound money or whatever ETH promises to be, then you should probably be able to defend against these attacks. And one of the ways to do it, to be sufficiently decentralized, is to have the ability to withdraw your stake. And I, for, for the life of me, I can't understand why. And I, you know, I'm not a developer. I haven't written, truth be told, I haven't written a line of code in my life, which is embarrassing. But there are people that are, that are you know, they're full-time engineers for this protocol. And I understand it's a complex system with a lot of moving parts. But to not have the withdrawal code Implemented on like a switch at this point in time when you're transitioning to a new consensus mechanism to me makes no sense. So I would love if someone could explain it. And I don't know if Alex knows, I don't know if Brad knows, but it's somewhat mind blowing if I'm being honest. I think it would simply be a, an admission of failure for them to, to to have to resort to say pausing the the merge or switching their stance. I mean. If we're being if we're being honest, like this is par for the course for Ethereum. Like they've never been one for that, you know, would advocate for caution first. They're they're more likely to try and patch things up as they go and and for them to for like this is such a climb like this climax of waiting for proof of stake for for so many years and and then when it shows, um, you know, Senate send it back home because it's not ready. I, I'm not so sure that it wouldn't actually be the most costly option for, for Ethereum as a whole. Like this would absolutely destroy, I think, a lot of trust that people put in, in, into that technology. So so I, I, I really like like I why why the, the withdrawal? Why the withdrawal code ready? It's simply because they didn't they never envisioned that it would be necessary. They, ne they never really envisioned that there, there could be such a problem. And to be honest, they, they won't admit that there is a problem. They they, they will not they, that's why they'll never pause the merge. They they'll go along with it because doing anything else but doing this would simply would simply be an admission that Ethereum as it is and, and after proof of stake. Is effectively centralized, and they would actually probably draw attention to decentralization and even give more ammunition to potentially USG entities to target those centralized vectors. So that's it seems to me like that's very, very unlikely to happen. Hey, for this, for the sake of objectivity, I know like a lot of us have kind of a 
you know, pro Bitcoin, pro proof of work, you know, proof of stake is a mess stance. But if we could get Udi up here, everyone's favorite, you know, multi-chain maximalist, just to give devil's advocate other side, think what you want about the actual opinion, but I'd love to get a kind of a, an alternate stance and maybe you could, you know, uh, defend, you know, <laughs> or support the, the pro ETH case. Udi, if you want to come up, man, you're more than welcome. <laughs> How is it that always in, you know, Always in Bitcoin. It's you, man. You just pop up. <laughs> in Bitcoin spaces, I'm like the the shitcoin defender. And in shitcoin spaces, I'm already known as the Bitcoin Maxi. How does that always happen to me? You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. <laughs> yeah, Udi, you did this to yourself. Udi, you can't steal that from me. That was my line. Yeah, well, it's fine. So what are we? Rudy, so I mean, we we engaged a little bit about this the other day, but do you like? Do you know why the roadmap has is like, you know, doesn't have the withdrawal function, or is that just like overblown? Are we are we missing something here fundamentally? Like I, I know you just popped in. Check check had his you know his kind of we talked a little bit about his thesis on the merge. I'm not sure if you saw his video, but you know we've been talking all on Twitter the last couple of days last week. But our Bitcoiners like you know overblowing his risks. I know your buddy Eric is is talking about an OFAC sanctioned fork, right? Like this would potentially be not really good at all for Ethereum and the asset and the whole DeFi ecosystem. Like what are your thoughts on this discourse? Is it just completely overblown? Yeah. So first of all, I want to say I'm really not anywhere near being an authority on on, on how proof of stake works and, and what the plans on the Ethereum side are. I I only have a passing, you know, knowledge into into the stuff so really i'm not the world's expert but from what i understand i mean first of all i think i think that due to the recent you know OFAC stuff and the tornado cast stuff i think that it's in my opinion i tweeted about it too i think it's a good enough reason to like pause and rethink and see if maybe some of the priorities need to be changed I can't imagine that, you know, the Ethereum people will choose to not go through with proof of stake, but may maybe some of the parameters could be changed because I do think that it kind of changes the urgency around things. Like, you, you know, like it seems like definitely parts of the U.S. government are very happy to like take pretty drastic measures so that, that they weren't ready to take before. So maybe it's a good time to rethink things. I will say that. But also, you know, there is a reason for the withdrawal stuff. You don't want to give stakers the option to withdraw too quickly because then they can, you know, they can do something you don't want them to do and then immediately withdraw to avoid slashing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, no. I mean, yeah, that's one thing. That's one reason. But I, that's true. It is one reason. But also they could do, you know, they could like censor stuff or they could, you know, they could violate the rules in whatever way and then immediately withdraw to avoid slashing. So that's kind of why there's supposed to be a queue that, that you know, stakers need to stay in, at risk for a while and they can't just immediately withdraw their coins because there needs to be time for people to slash them. But so there is a reason for that. But the, the thing that I'm not sure about is, if, you know, if there's a good reason to not even start the queue now and instead hold any withdrawal for the next, you know, 12 months or whatever. So eventually there will probably be a queue anyway, but I think there's a question about why do they want to delay withdrawals for the next year or so for everyone. So that is probably 
<laughs> I I would say this is something that's worth being discussed, given the you know the recent tornado cash shenanigans. I don't know if they will or not, but you know, I think I think it's worth some discussion. The Maxis were right again. Who do you say it, man? <laughs> I think it's, I mean, no, 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 I, I appreciate Udi coming up here and, and once again, having to be the eighth defender. But I think what, I think what all of this has shown a light on is you have this weird window, this length of time where your most popular wallet, most popular ETH node providers, most popular centralized exchanges all of a sudden have incredible amount of control. And, you know, there, there might be a healthy discussion on, you know, should, should we allow smart contracts such as Tornado Cash to be censored or removed? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? But it doesn't, but it, it almost doesn't matter because all of your infrastructure says no. And no one else has a big enough vote to push back. And, and now they're realizing, wait a minute, how long is this? How long is this incredible amount of control going to last? Six months, a year plus, longer? This is this is a problem. This is kind of you know theoretical, but just as a, as a thought experiment, I think that that for a proof of like a proof of work smart contract chain, I guess like what Ethereum has kind of been over the last you know five or six years, but maybe more steady. I think there's like potentially you know that could be pretty valuable, and I you know obviously these decisions about proof of stake and the merge and everything were made out five, six, seven years ago. And, you know, a lot, a lot of people have put a lot of time into coding these things, talking about these things and risk factors, and, you know, whatever. But, you know, is like, are we bidding the proof of work fork here, guys? Like, I feel like there's some value for a proof of work, smart contract chain, whatever that Ethereum and Solana and all these guys are trying to be like, no, it's not, it's not global sound money. You know, it's not a neutral reserve asset, but it's this other thing. And, you know, maybe the proof of work mechanism in that loop was actually pretty important. Like, I don't know. I'm just, just kind of posing questions here. I think that, you know, like there's, in my point of view, I think that for Bitcoiners too, and for really everyone, I'm really happy that the Ethereum community is willing to test this, you know? Like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if, I don't know if the government is going to take action against seekers. And if it does, I don't know who's going to win. I think it's great that we're going to have answers to those questions, though. And and I'm, I'm very happy that I don't have to take financial risk myself in order to find out. So it's like, yeah, let them, you know, let them test it. Let them try it out and see what happens. Maybe we find out that their system is resilient enough. I can't predict that it isn't. Maybe we find that it sucks. I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be exposed to Ethereum through the merge. <laughs> Definitely not. But like, if if they wanted to try it out, good for them and also i will you know i will honestly i will say i hope it does work out because i think that ethereum does provide or has provided so far some things that are useful and i hope that they can continue to now whether or not they can i don't know but i i hope they can you know like i, I don't have any reason to hope that they fail i hope they succeed and if they fail i think we also earn something because we learn and we know that that you know we know what should be fixed or that we should throw away the, the, the what are you saying you, you hope they fail or succeed at what they reactivated software i i don't know what strategy they will take but i hope that proof of stake as a concept succeeds i hope that ethereum succeeds i hope that you know 
the applications that people use on Ethereum today can but if Ethereum to operate. I hope so. I don't know, but I hope but so. But why, why would we hope Ethereum succeeds if we know that Ethereum succeeding as its current state is like a Trojan horse for tyranny? Why would we hope that? No, I, I, so what I'm saying is that we don't know that. And and if it's true, I think that I'm, I'm pro-experimentation. And I think that if people try it out and it fails, and you know, if Brad, you end up being right, and Ethereum ends up being like a Trojan horse for government control, great. So we'll know that, and we can throw away that experimentation, go on trying other things. But if it succeeds, that's great. Like if people can, <laughs> there's a real risk, though, Udi, that by promoting network effects of blog projects, I'm not promoting like anything. I don't know. I don't know who's promoting. no. I'm, I'm not promoting in general. Like, yeah, let's let's go over to Alex. Let's go over to Alex. Cheers. Yeah, no, I just wanted to wrap up a couple of points that were made. I think Matt made a great point about the infrastructure risk. And, and I think this ties in to, to Dylan's question, which is the reality is this is not only, this is really not solely a, a proof of stake uh, risk that Ethereum is facing right now. Proof of stake exacerbates all of the risks that we're seeing because it creates those sort of centralized vectors or centralized liabilities at, at the protocol level, at the, the consensus mechanism level. But in, in reality, when you're seeing the USG willingness to target today a smart contract, um, what, if, what if tomorrow is a uh, is MetaMask? What if tomorrow is uh, Infura or one of the uh, major RPC providers uh, within the, the, this infrastructure, uh, those are very, very, I mean, those, those are very transparent, very uh, centralized entities. And, and so the, the problem of censorship doesn't exactly go away with, with proof of work. Now, and something else that I want to mention, because I, I know that this is, it's been, that's been the narrative because I think Eric has been talking about this and, and, and Brad, you mentioned this, but I, I'm not very comfortable with the idea of calling whatever it is that they're trying to do in a UASF. I think they're just trying to piggyback. I think Eric is really just trying to piggyback off of the, the Bitcoin narrative because it was a successful one. I, I don't see how this really is a UASF at all. It really is a, a minority form. The dynamics are completely unlike a, a UASF. You're, you're not the UASF, a, a successful UASF is actually never sort of executed in, in code. A, a successful USF happens in the social, at, at the social layer where you're incentivizing miners, you know, you're aligning the incentives of miners to, to play along and have their blocks rejected. Whereas here, what, what they're talking about here by a slashing, you know, a third or two thirds of, of the ecosystem is really a minority fork. And, and when you're talking about that minority fork, you also have to consider again, the infrastructure part of things where you're not only saying, you, you know, you're not only closing the door to however amount of capital that will be slashed in the associated users, you're also closing the door on all this infrastructure. It's very unlikely that something like MetaMask or Insura or, or the RPC providers are going to side with the sort of anti-USG for. Um, so you're going to have to build a, a new tool set, completely new tool set, completely new ecosystem of applications. And and so you you really got something going <laughs> like you it, it's not going to be easy to sustain uh, anything like that because people are going to give up uh, people are going to have to give up essentially every single piece 
not every single piece, but a, a large piece of the Ethereum infrastructure and application as they exist today. So yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, I would like if we don't, you know, entertain the, the UASF argument, because I, I think this just, I, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that necessarily this, this was Eric's uh, intent, but I think this sort of equivalent try to give some sort of, I don't know, it, it, it's totally different from, yeah, it's totally different from the Bitcoin story because the Bitcoin story also was not only, you know, a bunch of people running nodes uh, signaling for USF. The reason, one of the reasons why USF, uh, you know, uh, uh, succeeded was because it had clear economic majority uh, backing it. I don't know that the economic majority argument uh, is as sustainable uh, in this conversation for Ethereum. It's very. It's really not clear to me. It's really not clear to me that even if we were to open staking withdrawals today, that the people over at Binance or Coinbase are they even aware that the merge is happening like next month? Like from their perspective, a whole lot of these people are just like clicking stake on their Binance account because they're being told that they're going to earn interest that way. They're they're not necessarily aligned with the Ethereum decentralized ethos narrative. From their perspective, you know they're profit maximalist most likely they're trying to earn usd or perhaps they're trying to earn more eat because that's their spe speculative play but yeah uh, not going to go over too long on that argument but i think it's 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 a misqualifier to to refer to this as as usf it, it really is a minority fork with completely different game theory and, and dynamics at play than what unfolded with with bitcoin and maybe perhaps to wrap wrap this up but i think from a bitcoin perspective also like one of the things that, that's been very educational for me and very interest, interesting is that, they, like Udi is right, there are a lot of lessons to learn from this. And one of the main lessons that I think that a lot of Bitcoiners have awoken to in the last year with regards to what the, the risk that MEV represented to for, for Ethereum is, okay, well, what are the opportunities for MEV in Bitcoin and how can we manage this in a way that we don't introduce those risks you know, at the consensus layer. And, and there are things that are being built today that have potential to introduce perhaps significant if they gain enough traction and MEV risk to, to Bitcoin. Some of them, there's really nothing we can do because they're being built in a completely permissionless way. And there's, you know, it doesn't require software, doesn't require consensus uh, or anything like that. But at least, you know, given that we have this experience of seeing how this thing is unfolding with Ethereum, we have the opportunity to start at day one. You know, we have the the educational opportunity to inform people about what those risks entail. And if we really want to go down that road, then I think that's very, very important. I think the thought experiment of, of what would happen in the case of a fork, potentially like we, what we saw with, with Circle and USD just, just last week. I mean, it's interesting because Ethereum can be, you know, it, it derives its value like supposedly from this uh, DeFi network effect, you know, uh, financial uh, infrastructure, permissionless, you know, whatever the, the narrative may be. And, and it's true that you can do many, many things with Ethereum on the protocol level and with the base asset than you can with Bitcoin. And anyone saying other, otherwise, just uninformed or lying, right? But when you see this, this, you know, DeFi infrastructure with, at one point, it's like, you know, $100 billion in stable coins. Right. And, and especially with USDC, which is about 55, mil, 55 billion at the moment. I'm stealing this quote from Lynn Alden, but she said, stable coins are useful, but centralized. And by extension, they centralize a network that becomes overly reliant on them. 
So, you know, in the case of this rogue soft fork where, you know, Ethereum, you know, says FU, that maybe it's Ethereum Foundation or the node runners, or, or I guess the validators in this case say, you know, we're, we're not accepting censorship and they fork off. Well, at the same time, you know, that fork isn't going to have, isn't, surely isn't going to have USDC and it's surely it's not going to have, I mean, I hope it does for their sake, but it's not going to have DAI, which is you know, their algorithmic centralized stable coin that's 55% reliant on USDC. Like all these things, the minute they fork and we'll see it with the proof of work fork that probably happens when the merge occurs, you know, someone will fork it off and the whole, the whole ecosystem that's built on the, on the Ethereum fork will implode, right? All the DeFi protocols liquidate, margin calls, the whole nine yards. It'll be interesting to see if anything of value could be rebuilt there. But just, you know, in, in any contentious fork environment in the future, which may or may not happen, and, you know, from, from government pressure that may or may not come, you know, what happens to all this infrastructure? It's a, it's a pretty complex and, and interesting thing to think about. And I certainly don't know how it's going to play out, just like, like Udi said, but just kind of weighing these potential scenarios. I mean, there's certainly risk factors. I think it's more involved than, you know, they're just saying they wouldn't have USDC on a, on a censorship resistant fork. I think so. Surely USDC is going to have a strong voice in that debate, right? And, and honestly, you know, US Circle is partnering with Coinbase. They're both kind of sort of running USDC together. So if someone is going to try to slash Coinbase and all of their users, I would. Assume that USDC would try to side with with Coinbase on that argument, probably because they're really tied very very deeply together. But also, you know, USDC and Circle and Coinbase do have legal liabilities to to USDC holders. Maybe they're not as liable as, as some regulated bank would be, but they 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 do have some liabilities. And they, it's not like they can do whatever the hell they want. So it would be, I mean, it will be interesting. I don't know for sure they will certainly choose to go with, uh, you know, with a Coinbase side of the fork. They might not have that option, especially if, if, it, if it's going to be very clear that the market chooses another option. And, and, and on that point, I mean, I, I definitely agree with Alex that it's not exactly the same as UASF. I mean, it's really not. A, a user activated software it's something else i don't i don't know how i call it but it's something else but it is similar in the dynamic of you know what's really going to probably make the decision is the market and and if there's going to be two opposing forks competing in the market then eventually what's going to decide is just market forces and that's sort of what happened in UASF2 I I would argue that it's probably not the nodes that made the decision it's probably just you know market forces chose to go with the non non segwit 2 x fork and I think you know if 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 the market does act similarly with an ethereum fork and people go with you know the side of the fork that chooses not to censor transactions then I think that everyone will have to follow of course you would rather not to go into that complete war in the first place if you could but if you had to i think that's how we would be resolved Kenobi, i would love to hear your thoughts well i would just like to say in terms of stable coin issuers liabilities that starts and stops with redeeming tokens for dollars like which side of a fork that's on what network that's running on is completely and utterly irrelevant to those liabilities. They have to redeem them. 
whatever network it's running on, that's the end of their liability. And I have no idea if this got brought up before I came in here, but I just have a question for anybody who thinks that a UASF to deal with exchanges having so much staking power. Why on earth do you think that anybody who has their coins on an exchange staking for them would support a fork that lights their money on fire? Like how on earth do you see that having any widespread support amongst anybody using that staking service? Yeah, I think that's why that's why I brought up earlier that like it's really not clear where which side the the quote unquote economic majority lays on as far as this debate goes. There certainly is a lot of capital in Ethereum that couldn't, perhaps to a certain extent, couldn't care less about censorship resistant properties. They, they a lot of them will see it. Perhaps a lot of them do see it simply as you know another fintech opportunity, a speculative you know, a, a new venture, a new frontier in, in, in finance. And, and that's why also there's, there's really also a, a very real alternative. And I, perhaps that's what Brad was envisioning. And this is something I, I, I discussed over the last couple of weeks, but there's also a very real alternative that they actually, in fact, decide not to kill the golden goose because they can actually profit handsomely from, from, from an Ethereum protocol that's easily you know, seized. And there's, there's a lot of opportunity for institutions to, to sit as, as rent seekers, in, in, even in a monopoly block producer scenario where uh, they're, they're able to extract very undue um, uh, capitals from, from users by um, the, the, there, there's, it's really, a, there really is a, a whole, there really is a lot of details and aspects that are uh, a lot of people are not familiar with, but when you're considering block producer scenario, you, you can envision censorship markets at the MEV level where you, you can give priority to certain participants to be able for, to, to, to allow them, you know, to capture this, these economic opportunities rather than, rather than others. And you can create a market for that where people uh, are actively bidding against each other to try and capture these opportunities. Any profits from that is the validators, is the, is, is the Lido protocol owners. And so I, I think the censorship, like the immediate protocol level censorship narrative uh, might be overplayed. And that is obviously because of what uh, unfolded with, with Tornado, Tornado Cash. But there's also a, a scenario where they, they decide to, you know, to, to, to play it all in the hands off because they, they see, I mean, if you, if you decide to let Ethereum quote unquote succeed, you, you allow yourself, if you're sitting on the throne to extract uh, an immense, potentially immense amount of value from that. And I, I, I would be very surprised that they're not seeing this uh, this opportunity and they're not actively considering it. I'm not saying there's some sort of massive, you know, conspiracy at the, at the at the US government level, but certainly there are very very powerful and wealthy institutions already entrenched in the Ethereum ecosystem like I think Dylan you you brought up the tweet the other day just just today actually where JP Morgan was reported as having significant stake in in Pura or in consensus. And, and so, you know, they, they have active interests in not 
flipping the switch off on this on this experiment right away because there's there's certainly a big runway for them to you know to add especially 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 those kinds of institutions you know which certainly and I've, uh, their, their days, uh, the brighter days seems to be behind them and, and having the opportunity to sit again uh, as the uh, decision makers in this new paradigm, uh, it could be very, very tempting. D++, welcome to the stage. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Oh, hey. Yeah. Well, I just joined, so I don't really know exactly what's going on, but I don't really understand how proof of stake solves the problem of forming consensus in a decentralized distributed network. And when I say that, what I'm describing is the Byzantine generals problem. And that is what proof of work solves. Specifically, that's what Bitcoin solves, which is the proof of work chain with the most work. So I, I, I guess I'm a little confused. I don't understand how proof of stake can solve that because if a stakeholder signs off on the state of a ledger, they didn't have to produce any kind of work to do so, meaning they could simultaneously sign off on multiple states. So if you're in a distributed network that has no so-called central authority, where do you look? How do you know which record to look at? You wouldn't know where to look, and therefore it would just be complete chaos. Your statement goes uncontested. I mean, I think there's that's been the open question for for a long time, and. Um, what I find more interesting is that we've, you know, as Bitcoiners, we've always theorized that proof of stake was, you know, like, as you said, not simply not a solution to, to the problem that coin, coin is fixing. But, but I think the more interesting uh, aspects of it uh, and why we're having this conversation is that things are actually playing out in practice. We're seeing the cracks of that system and it's, the, the, the problem really is that it's not clear whether or not, like I just said, whether or not this this sort of clown show can can continue. It, it, it could very well continue for a long time. And it's you know Ethereum has never necessarily been about decentralization in practice. It's always been about advertisement narratives, decentralization in in, in theory, if that decentralized marketing and. And I, I could totally see them, quote unquote, succeeding uh, at that for for a long time. And and so, it the fundamental sort of computer science theory that that shows that you that you just explained that that shows why they're not decentralized is probably not as convincing of an argument as as you know if it the censorship opportunities, the, the governance control opportunities that are playing out in the real world that we can actually actively point people to and say, hey, don't you think like, you know, you know, I, I know we've, I know you heard about how Ethereum is pre-mined and it's a shitcoin and it's a scam and maybe you didn't mind, but now this shit is actually playing out in, in, in the real world. What do you think about that? And I think that's, that's, that's something that might lead people to reconsider their stance, at least it's more convincing than, it's not necessarily all theory, it is indeed sort of computer science at the end of the day, but for, I think for a lot, for a lot of people, that's just too abstract to consider. 
Brad, you have your hand up, man? Yeah, just, I guess that's kind of where I've been coming from with my criticisms of Ethereum, like for the last three, two, two to three years, ever since like DeFi summer 2020, when all my crypto friends were like telling me about these food Ponzi's they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars on it. You know, you can earn money as a AMM provider and all this. I was like, okay, well, there is definitely something happening there. So I went and tried to look at DeFi and use DeFi a lot, try to create DAOs and create NFTs and just use it all. And I came pretty quickly to the conclusion in 2020, summer 2020, that the end game here is complete government capture because you're, you're, you're like, once you invite the regulators to have jurisdiction, it's like inviting vampires into your house. They can't come into Bitcoin if you don't have something that they can directly regulate inside of the core of your system. But with MakerDAO kind of like being one of the main algorithmic stable coins, ended up having to back USD back a die with USDC to hold the peg. I mean, that was just the first kind of sign that the culture of Ethereum is not actually decentralization. There's a lot of LARPing of decentralization, but when the shit really hits the fan, they're totally willing to bend the cypherpunk values and principles of censorship resistance and privacy and decentralization. And when you combine it with what we saw happen over the last two years with all these token airdrops and stuff where they're basically redoing the ICO bubble and just doing it where it's like, not me giving you money, it's a smart contract giving you money, therefore it's not an ICO. I mean, there's I just don't see any possibility and it's been like a year and a half since this has been my view that this does not end up with if Ethereum succeeding as a global settlement layer for trillions of dollars of derivatives and notional value of all the stuff that's happening in the traditional markets, if all that actually does happen on Ethereum, it's not going to be good for the world. It's going to be something that's like if the ultrasound money meme actually succeeds and all these like influential people back Ethereum and elevate Ethereum over Bitcoin. And that's the thing that we're all using. I mean, it's not going to be good for the world. Brad, I think, so, I think re- really quick, I want to kind of circle back to the conflicting signing amongst stakers. Like the, the entire dynamic there is why slashing protocols were existed. And you don't need to see a canonical state in order to enforce slashing. Just the existence of two conflicting states is what's necessary to actually slash and penalize a staker that's signing conflicting states. That's actually kind of the heart of the entire matter around exchanges running stake pools and proactively slashing. I think without even going into the weeds of it all, though, like the whole Bitcoin crypto argument, argument, debate, whatever you want to call it, I think it can be kind of whittled down to this um, from the Bitcoin side of things. It's like Bitcoin was an engineering solution to a, con- to a computer science problem that existed for a long, long time which essentially was, you know, the double spend problem. How do you send value trustlessly across the internet? And with that, with proof of work combined with a difficulty adjustment, we essentially, you know, we think we may have figured out the problem. They figured out, you know, a solution to this really, really big problem. And Bitcoin essentially kind of, you know, with absolute scarcity kind of, and it's triple entry accounting, we kind of have something really special here. And it, and it maybe solves a problem in the biggest 
you know, total addressable market in the world. And Ethereum and crypto and whatever else, you know, build fast, break things. And, you know, it's pretty novel. You know, I, I respect what people are doing and, you know, the idealists in the world and trying to build this stuff, but it's just not competing for the same thing. And, and you know, that zero to one of, you know, we Satoshi released Bitcoin, you know, the first, first software. And then it, from there, just kind of genie was out of the bottle. I think that's like the, the, the story and, you know, talking like going into the, you know, the validators and slashing and all this, like, you know, these really technical specifics of proof of stake and, you know, this protocol and that protocol and this DAO, it's important to understand and be able to articulate it. But like, you know, that's why the, the maximalist like Bitcoin and everything else, I think that's where I approach it from. But I, I see Woody has his hand up. Oh, Woody has his hand up. This will not end well. I, I, I mean, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, I think that a lot of the narratives on the Ethereum side are batshit crazy. You know, the top one is the ultrasound money meeting, but it's like, it's ridiculous. I, I think, I think fewer and fewer people, even with me on the Ethereum camp, buy into that crap these days. I don't think Ether as an asset or Ethereum as a platform can compete with Bitcoin. I think they do completely different things. And, and that's why I said before that I, I hope it succeeds. I mean, I, I do hope that Ethereum manages to be a censorship-resistant platform for DeFi apps. I hope they do. I hope they don't get stopped by government. I mean, I hope they find a way to do it. I think that, that you know, Brad is probably right that in the current state of things, it's more likely than not that eventually, in one way or another, they'll be stopped. I don't know if it's through proof of stake or through in fewer or through something else. But I just don't think that that opinion is super interesting like yeah of course the default is that the government is going to shut everything down but the value is in trying to figure out a way that they don't and trying to find a way to you know to to combat the many different ways that the government can can stop things now the way that bitcoin does it which is fabulous the way that bitcoin does it is by just optimizing for resiliency and not agreeing to take any shortcuts anywhere. And I think that's the right choice for Bitcoin as money. But because Ethereum isn't money, it isn't going to be money, and it's trying to be a platform for apps, then it probably needs a different set of trade-offs. And I think they're trying to find it. I don't know if they're going to find it with the merge. I don't know if it's going to be a step back or a step forward. I honestly don't know. But I, I, I think it's great that they're trying to find it, and I hope they do find it. You know, I think that's a reasonable position to hold. And I think it would be good for us Bitcoiners too, if, if they manage to find a way to, to have a censorship resistant platform for apps, that's great. Now we can use Bitcoin in those apps, you know? So I hope they do. And if they don't, I hope someone else does. But I think that this is, you know, this is the reason I'm excited about all of this, because we're going to have answers. So this is, in my opinion, that's right. But I mean, Udi, if it's not trying to be money or an asset that accumulates and retains value, just a utility platform, then like, think about the circular logic there. There will be no demand for that asset economically, except the bare minimum necessary to use the platform, where that asset that will have spiraling lack of demand down to the bare minimum necessary to use it is what actually incentivizes the security of the platform itself. So the dragon starts eating its own tail there. Like if it cannot be an asset that maintains monetary value, then the entire system starts collapsing in terms of incentives. 
Yeah. So, you know, I said this before and, and I'm happy to say it again. I'm personally, I'm not that bullish on ETH as an asset. And, and, and you're right that Ethereum as a platform probably needs ETH as an asset to function. So what happens if ETH goes down and can't support the platform? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't know what happens. I think that the interesting thing is that they it died. Now, well, the thing is they can keep changing it. So this is, and they did. So they, they change ETH as an asset all the time. They recently changed it like a few months ago and they're changing it again now with the merge that has economical influences on the asset itself. And they'll change it again in the future, I have no doubt. Now, if you look at ETH as an asset two years ago and compare it to ETH as an asset today, it's certainly more attractive to be an ETH holder today than it was two years ago. Because two years ago, there was literally no reason to hold ETH because there was there was no sink into the, the value of ETH. And now there is. And maybe in two years, they'll come up with more of those. I don't know. I have no idea. I, I tend to agree with you that they probably will not. But I think that they'll try to. So I hope they'll find a way. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be. I hope they find a way to sustain ETH prices. I hope they find a way to, to support the ecosystem. If they don't, I mean, okay. So they don't. But I, I, I'm hopeful because I want this stuff to work. I don't want it to fail. No, but do you not see the inherent contradiction in everything you just said? You are bullish on ETH as a platform. ETH is not trying to be money. Yet, without it being money or having a monetary value, it will fail as a platform. No, so it literally so, cannot succeed without that. No, that's that's probably not true because there are you know there are other assets that can be valuable other than just money. You can, you don't have to have monetary value to your asset in order for it to. Udi, I don't I don't stockpile McDonald's gift cards and store value in them. No, that's I buy exactly it's, what I need to get my lunch for the week. And that's it's not it. Really, it's not really about what you stockpile. There are a lot of people in the world that they have, they own a lot of types of assets. And, you know, people own stocks and people own real estate. People own a whole bunch of types of assets. Maybe they will want to own ETH too, even though it's not money. Maybe. I don't know. I, 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 I'm not saying they will. I'm telling you, I'm not bullish on ETH. But maybe they will. So I, I'm not. Why? Like you own an asset to either I mean, use it or speculate on the fact that you think other people will use it. So, like, but think I think about. The, it. I, I think the obvious argument is just that ETH devolves into some sort of, you know, some sort of federated consensus model where the Ethereum effectively as, uh, acts as, as some sort of equity in, in, in the system where the validators are, are rewarded by a transaction fee. Now, the other argument, obviously, the, the obvious argument that you can make to that is that this this appears to be a race to the bottom where if if you have this technology available and you don't have to pay, you know, obnoxious amount of money to to support a, an entirely decentralized network, then you'll have you have to look at things like Solana where, you know, the, the fees are extremely cheap and, and either not necessarily it, it's a question whether or not it's actually going to and if and Solana itself, at least the, the current price could very well not be sustainable, but there there are potential revenues to be made from offering a quote-unquote distributed platform for for applications now whether that i mean it's it's kind of i think it's a moonshot in practice how does that play out because if you're not actually offering censorship resistance and how are you different from you know the whole excel sheet argument but uh, there's 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 an interesting 
I think there's an interesting sort of. I like I I guess I'll side with Udi in that it's not so clear to me how all of this will will play out. Ish will uh, die, or it will be the thing that finally replaces Cobol for Banks. Pick one. Not actually oh, in, in its in its current <laughs> iteration. In its current iteration, I I, I completely agree. I guess, you know, I just don't think that it's, you know, our role as Bitcoiners to to be opposed to replacing COBOL. Like, you know, like if it ends up replacing COBOL, great. If it's not, also great. Like, I don't I don't see a reason why, as the Bitcoiner, I need to hate on the attempts. You know, like, I, I hope it works out. And, and I agree, there's a lot of reasons why it will not work out. So that's why I'm not going out there and saying, hey, you should buy ETH. I'm definitely not buying ETH. And I... Definitely don't recommend that anyone else does. But if you know, if people want to make that bet, reasons to making it too. You know, the discussion is good, but I think that I think it's good for us if it succeeds. You know, like obviously, like COBOL sucks. The banking infrastructure sucks. I think if it's replaced by something that's good, that's good for Bitcoiners too. So, like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful. I'm not saying I'm bullish, but I'm hopeful. But I think that, like, I don't have any, I don't have any problem with that perspective. I just think that the, I think that the, the challenge is that we're not, we're not discussing like why the Byzantine general's problem solution is important well enough yet. And, and really it's a function of settlement, right? Like the movement of information from one set of hands to another set of hands with, with a, a level of assurance that is mutually agreeable to both parties, uh, you know, in, in a trustless manner, like that, like that value proposition of that information transfer, like is the thing that's happening that is so, so, so important. And the running of, of code and the execution of, of contractual obligations between two parties, like deserves in many cases, the same level of assurance of, of sort of the inf- information's fidelity between the two parties. So I think like that's where I, you know, Udi, I'd agree with you that I'm really hopeful that we can get to a point where the transfer of that information, the running of that code, the settlement of that contract, the movement of that asset, like that can all happen with a degree of assurance that I would be willing to opt into. But short of being offered that, like, I'd rather just use banks and buy stocks, right? Like the 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 other you know so that's one piece of it that, that I just have heard that I wanted to to reflect back a little bit. The second is just like I think that there's this you know there's this 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 problem that has happened with like where does value creation and value accrual like how does that happen? Where does that happen within the context of the system? And like tokens didn't invent like a new mechanism of value accrual, right? You're either you're either closer to the spigot, you're either you're either claiming, you know, future cash flows or you're speculating on price appreciation, right? Like the, the number of ways that that number goes up is reasonably finite. And so I think that, you know, we as Bitcoiners can do a better job being more, I guess, less disingenuous, more ingenuous about like, where did the, where does the money come from, right? Like, where does the revenue come from? And I think that, you know, you know, proof of stake is just a migration more towards an equity-like vehicle. Right. Except that, except that the barrier to entry to owning that equity is, you know, the price equivalent of 32 ETH at, at the point in time. So I think just being more honest about the revenues and what do those revenues mean within the context of the system and more transparent and, and who gets to change how many of those revenues get assigned to whom and, and who's allowed to make those decisions. Like those are, those are just 
just other things that, that we don't spend enough time as Bitcoiners, you know, talking kind of clearly and calmly about. Why is it important to have accurate, credible monetary policy? Well, because, you know, at, at some point, your ability to depend on the trustless transmission of that message will come down to the, the, the no ability of that monetary policy over, over time within the way that, that, you know, proof of work and difficulty adjustments have been, have been designed and implemented to date. So I just, I just think that like, there's a lack of understanding of like the atomic particles that fit within these systems and, and why do they function the way they function? And then what are sort of the extrapolatable outcomes that happen, you know, on the far side of that? Alex has a ton of great work talking about, you know, where does this sort of this MEV atomic unit like, what can you extrapolate out to understand based on the MEV atomic unit? I think Bitcoin does a great job of describing what that atomic unit does from a proof of work plus difficulty adjustment perspective. And so the, the more that we can talk about what the systems are and what outcomes they enable, you know, the better we can kind of be seen as, as clean and clear headed rather than, you know, inflammatory or religious. I think those are all great points, Harry. And I, you know, it feels also. It feels to me like, like we're we're so staunch on sometimes on, on trying to differentiate, you know, crypto and, and and Bitcoin, and we're we're so adamant that they're different. But it also feels to me like we're ourselves kind of muddling the the, the debate by you know this whole sort of Byzantine generals problem. Sure, that's that's necessary if you want to have money, but not not everything you know requires that five default tolerance and so you have i think there's a design space for strictly sort of byzantine false tolerance systems where you don't have obviously the decentralization and the distribution that you have with bitcoin but you have opportunities to at least remove central point of failures and this this intermediate processes financial processes in a way that makes them perhaps you know not not necessarily permissionless, but incentivize competition and and overall probably results in just better products. I, I think when we say I'll just I don't know when we say I'll I'll just go to the bank and and use in stocks and and whatever it just it it seems to make the assumption that we cannot iterate and improve on that and I it feels like it feels like we we should but we're probably not there yet and I think that's one of the biggest fault of Ethereum is is trying to. You know, reinvent a, a financial system where, when when we really just haven't even gotten to the the beginning of the, you know nailing down all of the X points and adoption overall of, of the fundamental base of this financial system, which is money. Well, I think I think the existential crisis of the last two weeks has been, and and yes, Udi has stated a couple of times here he's not an ETH maxi, but some of these much bigger ETH fans have been, you know, having a crisis over over this tornado cash situation because, look, uh, it's shining a light on even being a large stakeholder is probably not enough in the future of centralized infrastructure that ETH is looking at. They haven't even merged yet, but they came to a major event where you know, Tornado Cash is now verboten according to the Western governments of the US. And before they could even look up SDN lists and Google OFAC, their most popular their most popular wallet, MetaMask, their most popular used nodes, consensus and pure, and their most popular 
quote unquote safe stablecoin USDC banned it, made the decision for them, done, signed and sealed. <laughs> that think about that for longer than five minutes and and how are you not just incredibly worried? Like, wait a minute, that's a situation now we haven't even emerged yet. That's a crisis. I think it's 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 also like the you know whether it's ETH proponents or altcoin proponents in general, like the whole marketing pitch of one decentralized whatever, right? Whether it's decentralized financial infrastructure, decentralized applications, decentralized finance, as well as proof of stake being framed as you know, a competitor of proof of work or, you know, a different consensus change, but, you know, it's better or more secure or whatnot. It's like kind of almost setting itself up for failure in a way. Like, I think there's room for gas assets, you know, whether that's Ethereum or Solana or AVAX or whatever, whatever it is, like these, these things, these chains, these, these execution mechanisms, you know, but is there probably a lot of, you know, monetary premium in the altcoin space that isn't real liquidity and, you know, it's going to get deflated over the next decade against BTC? Like, I, I really think so. And that's fine. I think, you know, that's just kind of the point or the frame that I try to come from when talking about these these things. Because I like, I mean, I comment on the Bitcoin and the crypto space. And then some of the stuff, like it, it's a novel idea to, to build this and to try this stuff. But, you know, is there a lot of, is a lot of the use case and, and, and you know, user experience just pure speculation? Yeah. And, that, and that's fine to recognize that, but it's just fundamentally different than what is being built over on the on the Bitcoin side of things, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you know, in that in that comparison to Tornado Cash that Matt brought up, I think you know there are two ways to look at it. One, for sure, absolutely, like the government decided they wanted that they wanted to stop this, and they mostly succeeded. Like, definitely, the volume in, in Tornado Cash dropped significantly and i would say probably a lot of people are afraid of using it it didn't drop completely though like it still exists and still being used and that's because it can't fully be stopped so yes you had infura blocking access and you had usdc freezing assets in it and you had metamask not allowing access to it you had the domain uh register of it shutting it down so it's really it's like hard to use it right now if you want to but you still can and some people do now compare that to you know, the premier Bitcoin-based privacy solutions, like let's say Samurai and Wasabi, they both require like a, a coordinator server to function. If you take that one server down, you don't need to reach out to both Circle and a domain registrar and a, a GitHub and whatever. You, you just take this one server down and the service is, you know, the service is down. So... It's not like the Bitcoin competitors to Tornado Cash are somehow more resilient. I would say they probably just didn't. You left out joint stress. market. No, I, 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 I didn't. I, I, I talked about the two popular ones, and it's true the joint market is is harder to shut down than the other two because you know joint market requires you to go find the server, which makes it more difficult to use, and that's why it's also not as popular. So, you know, like the the. It's not like a joint market doesn't have a server, it just requires it to go find it. So the 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 thing is with, with something like Wasabi and Samurai, and by the way, we saw how Wasabi was probably approached by authorities. We don't know exactly what happened, but either way, they decided to block a lot of addresses from using it. So, you know, it, we saw it in practice. It happened. Tornado Cash just proved to be more resilient and more popular. So... 
I guess what I'm trying to say is it's useful to have these other approaches. I'm not saying let's make Bitcoin uh, susceptible to all the things that Ethereum is susceptible to, but let them try because they sometimes they achieve things. Like the tornado thing is achievement is an achievement. I think it is still now after being attacked by the government, it's probably still more popular than coin join alternatives. So you know it is an achievement that I think we should look into and respect and maybe learn something from. I wouldn't say it's all a failure. And I think that the fact that it's still going is, is actually kind of impressive. So, you know, there are two ways to look at those things. Woody, join market yeah, has automatic peer discovery to find people to mix with. And as well, you can spin up new coordinators for zeroing services. And also, last time I actually looked into figures, something like 5% of all Bitcoin transactions are coin joints. Is that a real, is that a real number? I don't, know if, I don't know if it's 5%, man, but either way, I can, I can tell you for sure there are stats, you can look at them, that the, the volume of, of Tornado Cash transactions is, is, is much larger than the coin join, all of them combined, all of the different. Options. I think actually, even if you only look at WBTC on Tornado Cash, that alone, and that's a minority, but that alone is more popular than all coins are combined by volume. So, you know, something's happening, you know, like it's not nothing, like something is going on. Obviously, Bitcoiners too are choosing or chose to use this tool before. You know, something is going on there. I, I think that it's worth it to look into it and learn from it. And and also, I wouldn't call it a failure, you know, like it's the fact that they built something that was so frightening to the government that it had to launch a full blown attack and still didn't manage to fully close it down. Like that's pretty impressive in my book. My friends, this has been a fantastic conversation. Unfortunately, we're going to have to bring it to a close. Thank you so much to everyone who jumped up on stage, offered their, their opinions. I appreciate the quality of the conversation that we've had here today. Cheers, guys. Thanks for coming up. That was fun. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. Hey, guys. This is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. We're going back to Miami for Bitcoin 2023. Lock in your tickets before prices go up. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets today. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.